The Old Testament reading is from Jonah, chapter 3. A uh, reminder that Jonah has now been spit up by the fish, and he is in Nineveh, uh, preaching that God's going to destroy them in 40 days. So starting at verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and pub- published through Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger, so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he, he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're going to skip down to the, to the gospel reading. Um, this is, as Pastor said, this is about the transfiguration, uh, which is just a fancy word that means a drastic change in appearance. Uh, Moses and Elijah are going to make an appearance here, uh, and, and they're more than just uh, Bible celebrities. They kind of represent, Moses is representing the law, and Elijah is representing the prophets, which are kind of the two major parts of the Old Testament, uh, helping to signify that Jesus is both upholding the law, which the Israelites had broken, and fulfilling all the prophecies that had been made about the, about the Messiah. So, the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the 17th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision, until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Uh, so the epistle reading uh, is from Second Peter. Uh, and this is, uh, so this is Peter writing. Um, and he's talking, uh, he's going to reference his experience there at the Transfiguration. Um, this is, uh, he's writing this about 35 years after this transfiguration experience, and he's writing to people to try to help them deal with false teachings, how to discern between uh, good teachings and false teachings. I, I want to point out a phrase that um, I thought was a little bit misleading. Uh, I-, I was misled by it until I-, I looked a little bit deeper into it. So if you look at verse 19, the start of verse 19, it says, and we have something more sure, the prophetic word, uh, to me, an untrained English person, uh, it, that seems to mean that um, the prophetic word 
is more sure comparatively than something else. And in this case, he would be referring to the transfiguration experience, leading, which led me to believe that um, he was saying that the Bible is more sure than this experience Peter had where God spoke directly to him. Uh, this is uh, not what Peter is trying to say. I actually like the ESV translation a little bit better, which says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. So what Peter's trying to say here is, uh, before Jesus came along, all throughout the Old Testament, there's a bunch of these prophecies. And um, before Jesus, people just kind of had to trust that God was speaking the truth and that he would make good on these prophecies, which is all on faith. They had to believe that this, this was actually going to happen. And then Jesus comes along, and he fulfills a majority of these prophecies. Uh, remember that whole Moses and Elijah thing, that he is the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah. And Peter was eyewitness to this transfiguration stuff. So, so now Peter's trying to say that we can be doubly sure, we can be extra sure of the rest of the prophecies, because first of all, yes, we have faith that God is telling the truth. But second of all, he's made good on all of these other prophecies about the Messiah. So we can be doubly sure that he's going to make good on the rest of the prophecies. Like, for example, that Jesus is going to come back and that we will be joined together with him in his glory. Okay? Uh, so not only can we be confident in the Bible, um, but remember why Peter is writing this. He's writing to people who are struggling with how to discern between good teaching and false teaching. Um, and so he's trying to help them see that we can use Scripture because we know so certain that Scripture is true. We can use Scripture to test other teachings. Do they line up with Scripture or do they go against Scripture? Okay? So, so the Bible is kind of the fact that we judge everything else by. Okay, so here's the reading from 2 Peter, starting at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, or as the ESV says, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, let's talk about uh, Jonah 3 today, which is the Old Testament reading. And before we do that, let me, talk, let me give you a little explanation of um, if you're not familiar with this, the church here, this is uh, Transfiguration Sunday. Transfiguration Sunday comes after Epiphany and right before Lent. Transfiguration Sunday, as we just read about, is the Sunday when we think about um, Jesus. So J- Jesus is a construction worker, right? I mean, his friends see him as a construction worker and as, uh, in some sense, some sort of leader and in some sense as connected to God somehow. But at the Transfiguration uh, sort of the veil, or the curtain gets pulled back for Peter, James, and John. So they get to see uh, Jesus, who he really is in his glory, just briefly. 
And it's kind of like it's a good way to wrap up Epiphany, which is the season when we think about God revealing himself through Jesus Christ to uh, humans. And uh, a lot of the gospel readings are about Jesus and demonstrating who he is. But it's also a good transition to the season of Lent. So Jesus says at the end of the reading, he says to his, his friends, okay, don't tell anybody what you saw until I rise from the dead. So Lent is this journey that we're about to embark upon, uh, heading towards the cross. Lent is the time of year when we think about life being a struggle, like uh, J- Jesus' path to missional success involves him getting killed, right? There's two different ways. You got to keep both these in your mind if you're a Christian. You have to keep Epiphany in your mind and Lent in your mind. There's two different ways to like, it's very stereotypical, two different ways to think about the world, right? There's uh, people who think life is good, fundamentally good and beautiful. And then there's people who think that life is fundamentally uh, crummy and troublesome. And as Christians, you guys know that both of those things are actually true, right? There is a fundamental beauty to life. God created human beings to be beautiful and to look like him. He created a world to display his glory, and he is determined to make sure that's going to happen. He's going to fix his world, and he's going to fix his humans. But the way that he does it is by dying, like I said. And what that means for you and I is that our lives are full of trouble as well. We live in a broken world that we were not designed to escape from, but to carry the brokenness of the rest of the world, to, uh, to love and to uh, be concerned for, and to eventually we're going to die, and uh, there's going to be troubles. And both of these things are true. And so Transfiguration Sunday provides a kind of a pivot point between the glory and the suffering. Not as an alternative, but as a both and. The life of glory is the life of suffering. The path to the kingdom is the path of the cross. For Jesus and for us too. And if you ever hear a Christian try to reduce the message of the Bible or the Christian life to one of these two things, there's going to be problems, psychological problems for us. If somebody's like, life is just miserable and suffering until we can just die and get out of here. You know deep down inside that that's not true, that there's such a thing as love and family and beauty. And you know that life is fundamentally good. But if somebody is like, oh, Christians, you know, you shouldn't be sorrow. You should just always be rejoicing and happy. And you know that that's not true either, right? That there is a, that there is a dark side to existence. There's a brokenness to ourselves and to our relationships. And to keep both of these things in mind is a very biblical thing to do. In fact, Christianity does a really solid job one of the one of the things that 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 one of the ways that Christianity appeals to me as a worldview is that it grapples and accepts both of those things. It doesn't deny either the badness of life or the goodness of life, but holds both of them together. Now, Jonah, this is a good text to read to, to, this morning in Jonah because it's about repentance, and repentance is going to be the name of the game in Lent, right? Living in a broken world with broken self and broken people and a broken creation. Longing for God to repair that. And always be pointing, psychologically, spiritually, socially, physically, mentally, always be pointing in this direction that, God, I need you to fix me, and I need you to fix my relationships, and I need you to fix my world. That's what we're going to be doing. And that's what's going on in Jonah 3, 6 through 10, where Jonah preaches the gospel, 
and the king of Nineveh and the rest of the Ninevites uh, repent. Let's read this uh, through real quick. I'll make a few comments here. So the word of Jonah, uh, the, the word about the repentance uh, through Jonah's preaching reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe, and he covered himself with sackcloth. Okay, uh, so there's sackcloth. Uh, sackcloth is essentially, um, it's the cheapest form of clothing that you could get in the ancient world. It's just animal skin and hair. It's not textile at all. It's just, and so you would wear it as a sign of poverty, as a sign of mourning. We don't really have this in our culture. A little bit, I guess. You wouldn't show up at a funeral with a Hawaiian shirt on, right? You would come with some sort of dark, muted colors. Our hearses are, are black. Before hearses, uh, before uh, motorized hearses, horses that were draped in black. He's going to talk here in a minute about uh, put sackcloth on your animals too. We're like, what? Before uh, motorized hearses, we would drape our horses in black that pulled the hearses. It's a sign of mourning. It's a physical sign of mourning, sackcloth is. And he sat in ashes. Again, ashes, uh, it's a good couple days here before Ash Wednesday. Ashes are a sign of death, decomposition. And so uh, to put ashes on yourself, which we'll do on Wednesday night at the imposition of ashes, is basically saying, I'm a dead person walking. Like, I, I, I live in a world where my destiny is my mortality. Right? This is what ashes do. It's a sign of mourning. And he issued a proclamation and published through, published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed or drink water. Fasting also, there's different things fasting does in the Bible. One of the things it can do is be a sign of mourning. You know, this, those of you who've lost someone close to you, you'll find yourself going for long periods of time and not being able to eat. To say, to, 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 to participate with other people who are mourning and not eating is a way of saying, I too am mourning. And so uh, fasting is a sign of mourning here. Uh, but let, me, let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them and he did not do it. Okay. So four points. This is a text is about repentance, right? The king of Nineveh and the people of Nineveh repent. Okay, kind of four things I want to point out from this text that we can learn about repentance. All right, so first of all, repentance is fundamentally, at its heart, repentance is turning away from our way of life and turning to God's way of life. So you'll, you'll notice the word turn in verse 8. Very last line, the king says, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that's in his hands. Verse 10, uh, follow up, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, uh, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. So repentance is fundamentally, so you have this way of life, this way that you and I, we're, we're living our lives a certain way with certain sort of goals and stories that we tell ourselves to give us direction. Repentance is turning away from that and turning to something else. So we've talked a lot here. and One of the sub-themes of Jonah is abandoning false idols. Do you remember in chapter 1, all the sailors are in this boat and they're in this storm and they all turn to their false, they're all praying to their false gods, like, help us out here. And they wake Jonah up and say, hey, you need to pray to your God too because we need help. And Jonah says, actually, my God's the God who invented storms. My God is the God of the sea and, uh, sea and land. And they're like, oh, my goodness. They abandoned their go- false gods that they're worshiping and worship the one true God at the end of the story. So we have, you and I, so you probably don't worship like a pagan deity, 
But you and I have these gods in our lives that we look to to get us out of storms. Right? We, have these, we have these things that we go to for help. And these could be, however many people are in this room, there's that many gods times maybe four or five because we're all like wrestling with multiple ones. Like, so so like if, you're in, if your storm is like your finances are in trouble, the God that you're going to pray to if your God is money is I need to figure out a way to make more money. I need to figure out a way to uh, 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 save more money. And that, that's the God that you're going to go to. For a lot of people, there, there's the, the, the God that you go to is bitterness. Like you're in some kind of broken relationship, uh, some sort of struggle, and you're bitter against somebody. Maybe you've been bitter against them for a long time. And you, if I said to you, you should stop being bitter, you might even say to me, I know because I felt this too, you might even say to me, Oh, yeah, sure, I'm not going to, though. And I know that it's not any fun, but there's a part of me that doesn't even want to stop being bitter against that person. So that's a God. That's just, so somehow in our minds, we think, if I'm bitter and I have horrible feelings for that other person, like, that's going to pay them back somehow. And I can't give that up. Maybe it's power, right? Being in control of the situation that you're in. I want to be in control, and I want to be able to determine what happens in whatever your realm is. You know, whether it's your house or whether it's your job or your neighborhood association, whatever. Like, I, I need to be in charge. And when, when you're not, the God that you're going to go to is like, what are the politics that I can play to get that power back? How can I manipulate people to get that power back? See what you're doing? See what we're doing? Is, so for me, you guys, you guys know this before. Like, food is a big one. If I'm having a bad day, like, I will plan out some sort of meal I'm going to have later on in the day. And I will go to that in my head as a source of comfort for my bad day. What have I done? I've got this false God that I'm looking to to rescue me. Repentance is, first of all, a turning. A turning way. And actually, in Hebrew, it's literally turning, right? Sometimes the ESV translates it turn. Sometimes it actually just translates it as the word repent. It means the same thing. What, the first step of repentance is turning away from food and turning towards the thing that actually can fix me. Because honestly, right, food's not going to fix me. If I'm having a bad day, like eating a, a, a tasty meal isn't going to fix my problems. It's not going to erase my bad day. Why do I think that's the case? Why do I think that somehow, like, I demand that my family makes me happy? Like, make me happy. They're not going to, right? I mean, I take pleasure in them, but they can't possibly bear the weight of fulfilling my insatiable desire to be complimented, my insatiable desire to be appreciated, to, 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 to be uh, 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 bowed down to, not, not, not literally, but like, you can have your way, you know, we just love you so much. They can't possibly carry that way. Why do I insist that they do this? It's because I've turned to false idols, and I need to turn away from them. That's the first thing, right? Is this fundamentally like moving away, turning away from the b- bad idols. Two, here's the second thing, is believing in the gospel. Right. Repentance is the flip side of faith. Repentance and faith aren't two separate things. They're just opposite sides of the same coin. In fact, in the text that you guys read last week with Pastor Lang, in chapter 3, verse 5, Jonah goes and he preaches to the Ninevites. And chapter 3, verse 5 says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. They had faith in God. So what they've done is they've turned away from their false idols and they're turning to the true God, who can actually fix their problems. Like the sailors on the boat, 
They turn away from their false idols, which had no power over that storm at all, to the God who invented and controlled storms, and they look to him for help. But this is actually what uh, Jonah refers to this. I'm, I'm going to read this again to you. This is back on that hymn he prays from the belly of the uh, fish. In chapter 2, he says this, When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake the hope of steadfast love. Like going after food or sex or power. And again, like I say this all the time, God invented food and sex and power and money. We're supposed to enjoy these things. But like to turn to them as the source of rescuing, it's going to be fruitless. And repentance is, first of all, turning away from those things as a God and turning towards the one true God who invented food and money and sex and power and your bodies and the creation and has the power to fix all these things. Now, hopefully you'll notice what I haven't said about repentance. Repentance is not in the Bible making a catalog of your sins and then trying to pick them off one by one. Repentance is not a matter of like, okay, I need to stop worrying about money. Okay, I need to stop demanding that my family like me. That's, that's not what's going on here. It's not, repentance is more fundamental than that. Repentance is, like the problem is not that I worry about money. The problem is that God, that, that, that money is my God and that creates the worry about money. You see what it is? Like I, dealing with the symptoms doesn't solve the problem. The symptom is that I worry about money. The symptom is, is that I actually think that sex is going to make me eternally and permanently happy. The symptom is, is that I want to be in charge of you guys. But the problem underneath that symptom that needs to get fixed, the disease underneath the symptom is that I worship sex, power, money, control, those sorts of things, food. Right? That's what needs to get dealt with. It's, it's, you can try to like give up your individual sins. You know that that's impossible. You can try to be like, okay, I'm not going to be bitter with that person. Don't be bitter with them. Don't be bitter with them. Don't be bitter with them. It's not possible. Like the more you try to do these sorts of things, I've, ca- I've called this before, like it's whack-a-mole, right? Like you're just whacking at all these like different sin symptoms. And unless the problem gets dealt with, unless repentance happens and we turn to the God who can actually fix our problems, Repentance is less about giving up your private sins and more about an orientation, a fundamental change of who we are, of not trusting Aaron Miller for his way of being human, trusting God in Jesus Christ for his way of being human. So like, I, so I grew up playing the piano, and the piano teacher that I had was a classical pianist, and I grew up learning to play classical piano, and I learned to play uh, hymns and stuff like that. But I've always kind of wanted to learn, I've always wanted to, to be able to play jazz. And if you know anything about like music, music, musical instruments, like it's a completely different language than classical piano. I mean, you, you know, you're making, you use the same instruments for the most part. But, but it's typically it's a different language. So what I did a few years ago was I bought a transcription of like famous jazz pieces. Your transcription is like the jazz piece like written out on sheet music. And I was playing that, and so I started playing that, and I was like, oh yeah, this sounds like jazz. But it actually wasn't, ha- it wasn't helping me be a jazz pianist, because if you know anything about jazz, like jazz is not played from a transcription. That's lifeless. It's improvised. Every time you hear a jazz combo or a big band or a, you know, a jazz trio play a piece, it will sound different than the last time they played it, because they're improvising. And I re- realizing that 
Like this wasn't helping me. I got a hold of a guy, uh, through, uh, Zach Stegman introduced me, Zach who played the organ last week, introduced me to a guy who teaches jazz piano, and I went and I met with him uh, for about an hour, and I had to tell him, you need to slow down, because I do not understand the language that you're speaking. And Because it was completely different to the way I thought about I realized in that moment that what I needed was not like, here's six techniques. What I had to do was surrender the way that I had been playing the piano my whole life and turn to this guy and even if I wasn't getting it, saying, I'm buying into his way. Like, he wasn't going to give me, like, here's the three things you can do to be a phenomenal jazz pianist. It's too complex for that. It's too multifaceted. And also, he could have just said, well, go home and play that transcription you got. That would have just dealt with the symptoms. I could have made the piano sound like it was making jazz, but I wouldn't really have been making jazz. I'd have been playing somebody else's transcription of them making jazz. Does that make sense? What repentance is, is less, like, learn a technique. It's less, here's five things you need to stop doing and five things you need to start doing. It is fundamentally a new way of life. It's a new, and, and Jonah uses the word way here. Turn from their evil way. Not give up their evil stuff, but turn from their evil way of life. So that's the second thing. First thing, it's a turning away from a certain way of living to believe, have faith in God for his way of living. And what that means almost all the time is this. It's giving up power. Giving up power. See, the, th- the illusion of believing that money can make me happy or that being in charge of my family and you guys can make me happy, the illusion of that is that I'm in charge of it. Right? I'm calling the shots. I'm making the money and it's my money. When I tell you guys what to do, you ask me how high you should jump. There's an illusion of control to that, even though it's actually a sort of a slavery. Because like I said, if you tell me to not be bitter at that person I've been bitter, bitter with for 10 years... I'll tell you, I think you probably are right, but I can't do it. It's, it's, a, it's a form of slavery that smells and looks like power and control. Repentance, though, on the other hand, looks like it's giving up power and control. And here's why we don't like repentance. is because, well, there's actually three reasons why we don't like repentance. There's three reasons. One is that it's not fun, right? It smells like failure. If I say I need to repent, it looks like I'm saying... Like, I'm screwed up and I need help. I'm a failure and I need help. This is actually true to some extent, although not completely the way you're thinking. More on that in just a second. So we don't like repentance because it smells like failure. We also don't like repentance because it's not fun. It's not enjoyable. There's nothing enjoyable about saying, I'm broken and I need fixing. We also don't like repentance, here's the third thing, because it seems fanatical, doesn't it? It seems like, you know, people who are like, we should repent, or y'all should repent. It seems like that's the kind of thing like that religious zealots do, like sackcloth and ashes, and like, oh God, pour out your mercy upon us. Um, that might be true sometimes, but not all the time. More on that in a second again, in, in just a few minutes. But, but actually, the, the, what, the reason behind all of those is repentance means giving up power. It means giving up control. So here's the king of Nineveh. At the time of Jonah, about 50 years before the time of Jonah, by the time of Jonah, this wasn't the case. About 50 years before the time of Jonah, Nineveh was the biggest city in the known world. Largest population. So here's a king of an immensely large city with with an immense amount of power. He's confronted by his sin, and here's what he says. Look back at verse uh, 6, first verse in the reading. The word reached the king of Nineveh. He arose from his throne. He got up from his throne. 
he removed his robe, he took off his royal garments, and covered himself with sackcloth. Basically what he said was this. I'm not in control of this anymore. I can't be in control of this. If I'm in control of this, it's screwed up. I'm going to have to abandon this. Repentance, this turning away from ourselves to turning away to, to God, to turning back to God, will involve giving up power, your own power. It will involve saying, I'm wrong. I'm actually not right. I need fixed. I, I got an email this week from a person that I barely know. I, I, I met them one time. Uh, she grew up in the LCMS, and she sent me an email this week, and in the email she talked about how much damage has been done to her uh, by the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. And she said, I'm going to quote from her email, she said, I've long been deeply disturbed by the misogyny. So, so uh, for you kids out there, a misogyny is a word that means hatred of women. I've long been deeply disturbed by the misogyny in, in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. It's one of the many reasons I left. I'm dismayed at the failure of the church and its leadership to protect the safety, agency, and privacy of women like me who once trusted and relied on its guidance. It was not a complimentary email. And I read this email, and my first, I told Angela, like, so my first instinct is to say, I've got three things to tell you, lady. And you don't know me. You don't know. What you call me a misogynist, like, or implying that I'm a misogynist. You don't know me. You don't know that I'm not a misogynist. And then I thought, wait a minute, though. Like, I need to repent, right? I mean, it's, 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 to, to say, to say to her, you're wrong and I'm right, is self-righteousness. It's a form of justification by works. To defend myself, to justify my own position by saying, you're wrong and I'm right. And instead what I did was I actually just apologized to her. And I asked her to forgive me and to forgive our denomination for whatever role we had in that. So, and so I said, you know, please forgive me for my thought, thoughtlessness and misogynistic attitudes and actions. And I said some other stuff too. That was all nice. That smells like I just totally caved in, right? Well, yeah, that's what repentance is. Repentance is a willingness to say, and I'm not, look, so what I'm not saying is like, I'm so good at repenting. That's actually kind of an oxymoron, right? I mean, repentance is saying, I'm not any good. To say that, oh, I'm not misogynistic would be a lie because I'm human and I'm broken and I'm sinful. And of course, I would love to manipulate the people in my life, men and women. To act like, no, 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 I'm just here, I'm righteous, would be a blatant lie. And the only thing that we can do, see, this is going to kill, it's going to kill me, and it's going to kill you too. To say to somebody, like, to, to lose, that's what it means, is to lose and to be able to willing to say, I'm okay with losing because losing is the pathway of repentance. And, not, and to give up the urge to defend yourself and to say, I'm right and you're wrong. I'm right and you're wrong is self-righteousness. Repentance means giving up power. And it's so hard. It's so hard. But that's the pathway of the cross, right? That's the pathway of saying, I'm broken and I need help. Okay, fourth thing, and then we'll be done. So I hope that what you're saying out of this is kind of summing up all these things. Repentance, it's not a list of things that you have to do. Repentance is turning from your sin and turning to Jesus to say, these things that I'm trusting in to rescue me can't, but Jesus can. Repentance is fundamentally a relationship with God. It's fundamentally about, fundamentally about a right relationship with God. 
orienting ourselves to God in such a way that it reflects his holiness, his rightness. God himself is the only person in the entire universe who's not misogynistic. He's the only person in the universe who's not entirely racist. And you can try to carve out a position for yourself where I love people, or I'm not a racist, or I, I don't care about money. And all you're doing is trying to create a space where you're righteous and God isn't. But as the book of Romans says, let God be true and every human a liar. That's where we're at. And to be in a relationship with God where we recognize that he's the right one and we're the wrong ones is fundamentally what repentance is about. Let me read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 25. Because here's the kicker. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy is saying, look, here's how you deal with people who disagree with you. All right? And the Lord's servant, that's me and you, must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance. Look, when, when repentance happens, whether it's with others or with ourselves, it's because God is granting that repentance. It would be like if this jazz piano teacher said to me, look, I've noticed that you can't play jazz. I, I'm going to come to your house. I'm going to give you a ride to my studio. I'm going I'm to teach you jazz. I'm going to make you good at jazz. It would be like, that's what's happening with repentance. When we do repent, it's God himself coming to us and giving us this repentance. Because we can't do it on our own. We need him to do it through us. And force. Now you, we still have to do it. We still have to turn from our false idols and do it, turn to him. But it's him that's granting us that. Now, what does this mean? Three things here. This will be real quick. Three things. First of all, repentance is good. I don't just mean it's morally good. I mean it's actually, when you think of repentance this way, it actually feels good, okay? Think of it this way. A lot of times we think of repentance as like, God, I'm so miserable, don't kill me. There are times when your idol is so, it has so much control over you that it's like a radical surgery to move you away from that and back to God. And there's times when it's just, sometimes it's horrifying to give up your addictions to whatever it is. Most of the time, though, repentance is like sitting there on the bench next to the jazz pianist saying, this is really cool. I don't know how to play jazz, but this guy does, and he's going to teach me jazz. That's not bad. It does involve an admission that I'm not good at jazz, and anybody who's ever taught knows how frustrating it is to teach somebody who's like, oh, yeah, I know that. I know that. No, you actually can't learn unless you say, I don't know that. Will you help? Repentance means you're sitting next to the God who can fix your life and he's willing to do it. And this is going to be good. And for 95% of the time, it's going to be enjoyable. Every once in a while, you're going to buck up against him and say, I don't want to do that. And then it's going to be a little bit painful, like it is for the king of Nineveh, who's been worshiping pagan gods his whole life. Most of the time, though, repentance is a pleasurable experience. It's a way of becoming a better person. And there's somebody there who is perfect and is helping you do it. Second thing, repentance is, this is related to it, it's not actually an admission of failure in a grand cosmic sense. It's an admission that I need help and that I'm broken and that I need saving, but I'm being fixed. I am becoming a better person because Jesus is working out his will in my life, because Jesus is making me look more like him. Repentance isn't failure. Repentance is actually success. I know it's counterintuitive. Giving up power is the way to the power over your own sin. But that's the reality. Last thing here. It's a relationship, so it's a lifelong pursuit. There's not a one-off repentance moment in your life where, okay, I've repented, and now I'm good to go. It's constantly going back to the jazz pianist and saying, teach me something more. I'm still not good enough. 
Help me out. I still want to become better. That's the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, where we belong to him and he's our God and we're his people and he loves us and we're knowing him and talking to him all the time and he's constantly changing and transforming us. Let me pray that God will do that in our lives. God, we want to repent. We want you to work repentance in our heart because we want to be better humans. We want to love each other more. We want to love your creation more. We want to be more true to who you've called us to be as people of truth and justice and righteousness. And, you know, frankly, we just mess that up all the time. And you know that. We constantly turn to false gods to do that for us. And so we're asking you to come alongside, pour out your Holy Spirit on us, transform us, give us repentance so that we look like you want us to look. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.